treat and extend regimens have been used for thousands of wet AMD patients. How does brolicizumab stack up when compared with a flibercept in a matched treat and extend study? I'm Greg Notstein here with Scott Chris Wannis, and this is New Retina Radio's coverage of the 2022 ASRS annual meeting. New Retina Radio spoke with Dr. Carl Regillo, a member of the Talon Study Group, which sought to find out if brolucizumab was superior to a flibercept for extending treatment intervals in wet AMD patients. We also spoke with Dr. Carl Danzig, whose work on the Truckee study illuminates real-world treatment dynamics when it comes to the use of farisimab in wet AMD treatment. How are patients responding in the real world? Stick with us to find out. Treat and extend protocols are effective methods of managing treatment burden for some patients with wet AMD, could particular anti-VEGF agents be more effective than others if this regimen is used? At the ASRS annual meeting in New York, Dr. Carl Virgillo shared data from the Talon study, which sought to explore that very question. He's here with us today. Dr. Virgillo is with Mid-Atlantic Retina in Philadelphia. He's also with Will's Eye Hospital, where he is director of the Retina Service, and Thomas Jefferson University, where he is a professor of ophthalmology. Dr. Virgillo, welcome back to New Retina Radio. Thanks so much, Scott. Pleasure to be here. Before we get to the design and the primary outcome results of the Talon study, can you tell us what the Talon study aims to explore? The Talon study is an ongoing, very large, global, 64-week, two-arm, double-mast, multi-center, active control study. And this study was a superiority study in evaluating the efficacy and safety of brolicizumab compared to a flibercept using a matched treat and extend treatment regimen in patients with neovascular MD. Underscore the notion that it's matched. So both arms in the study have an identical treat and extend treatment algorithm. Talk to me about the value of treat and extend regimens in the real world and why they're so attractive to so many patients and clinicians. Yeah, treat and extend as a form of uh, managing wet AMD with our anti-VEGF agents are really uh, it's, it's sort of well entrenched, if you will, in what we've been doing now for years, um, because it's probably the best way to get the best results in the most um, efficient and least burdensome fashion. So it's, it's probably the best balance between um, trying to minimize both over-treatment and under-treatment. You know, if you treated everyone every four weeks, you probably have very good vision results uh, on average. And um, yet treat and extend allows you to individualize and extend the treatment interval in many of our patients um, and still get comparable vision outcomes. And that's been validated at phase one level of evidence in multiple studies now. So what we're doing in practice really does work as long as our patients can come in um, and uh, get their treatments on the schedule that best suits them. Unfortunately, everyone talks about real world results with subpar vision outcomes, and that's true. Um, but that's just the reality of patients outside the context of a clinical trial because they get sick, problems occur, there's snowstorms, you name it, and they can't get in when they need to get in uh, for these timed injections. Let's get back to the Talon study itself. It's an international effort. We're talking about 20 countries, 118 sites that are enrolling patients. What more can you tell me about it? 
Well, it's very unique, not only in that we have identical treat and extend treatment arms for the two different drugs we're comparing here, prolocizumab and eflirbicept, but it's also superiority study, and that's why I emphasize that term too. That's unusual because usually we're doing non-inferiority studies showing that one drug works as well as another, but maybe dosed more frequently or less frequently, um, maybe showing some other type of advantage. But here, we're actually looking to see if brolicizumab is superior in terms of the ability to extend the treatment interval. That's the superiority aspect of the study. So that leads us to two basic objectives and two corresponding co-primary endpoints. So that's what makes this study unique. So the objective, one objective, and the main objective was to see if bolocizumab is superior to aflibercept with respect to the duration of treatment intervals at the primary endpoint, which is week 32. And so therefore the endpoint was actually, to show that, was the distribution of the last treatment interval with no disease activity at that week 32 endpoint. And then of course, it'd be moot if you didn't also demonstrate, and there's the secondary endpoint, uh, the second primary endpoint, I should say, which is to demonstrate that bolocizumab is visually non-inferior to aflibercept. You can back off and make something look more durable, but if it doesn't keep the vision gains comparable um, to your control group, then that's, that's moot. So the second co-primary endpoint was average change in BCVA, this corrected visual acuity from baseline to the primary endpoint averaged over weeks 28-32. Let's get to the study design, to the nuts and bolts of the Talon study who was enrolled and how were they randomly assigned? So this is a two-arm prospective randomized clinical trial. Um, enrolled were patients that were had neovascular MD treatment naive, so newly diagnosed untreated wet AMD. That's very similar to most major phase three level studies that we perform in this in this setting. And uh, typical best corrective visual acuity entry criteria: twenty twenty-five to twenty-two hundred. So we can expect patients with relatively good vision potentially in a study such as this. And this is the now FDA approved doses of brolicizumab six milligrams versus a flibercept two milligrams um, randomized again, one-to-one to get monthly injections times three followed by an eight week injection. And that constitutes the so-called initiation or induction phase. And that was followed thereafter by the treatment extend phase where patients could be extended by four week intervals out to as long as 16 weeks if the investigator showed or determined that there was no disease activity. It's a very important point here because many of our clinical trials allow for some disease recurrence before changing the, the dosing interval or the frequency of dosing. Here, we're trying to replicate, or the study was designed to replicate what we do in practice, which is, uh, and we recommended that investigators treat to and maintain a dry macula if possible. So uh, we're really trying to maintain a dry macula in order to optimize not only the initial vision gains, but the maintain those gains as best as possible over time. So treat to and maintain a dry macula and a treat and extend treatment algorithm. And that would have been um, a range of treatment extend from four to 16 weeks, but the study was later uh, amended to discontinue patients requiring every four week dosing after the initiation phase based on some safety data from the Merlin study, which emerged later. So ultimately this study becomes an every eight to 16 week 
uh, treating stand treatment regimen out to week 64, the end of study. I see. And that still required patients to come in for an evaluation every four weeks, not just necessarily to receive an injection, correct? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because patients are followed very, very closely. You know, we're pushing the envelope with the treatment extend to 16 weeks for both of these drugs because studies have indicated that the Flibercept, for example, a study I published in the past and others uh, have had some evidence to suggest that that drug can also go beyond 12 weeks in a treatment extend regimen. So um, we wanted to follow the patients really closely. We didn't want to make, want to make sure patients were not losing uh, disease control uh, by pushing at four-week treatment intervals, but by, by extending or retracting by four weeks and extending out to 16 weeks. All right, let's get to the results. Again, there are two primary endpoints, as you outlined earlier. Let's focus on the first endpoint, which sought to learn if brolicizumab was superior to a flibercept when it came to the duration of treatment intervals. Yeah, so I can tell you up front, um, brolicizumab met both primary endpoints. So therefore, it was found to be superior to a flibercept in the distribution of the last treatmentable interval with no disease activity. So we looked at the spectrum of patients um, getting treatment at the primary endpoint by week 32, looking at patients in the four-week, eight-week, and 12-week distribution. And at four weeks, there was a lot less patients getting brolicizumab, 26% versus 40% for a flibercept a little bit less at eight weeks, 36% versus 40%, and a lot more extended to 12 weeks with bolusizumab at 39% versus 20%. So you can see there's a shift in the distribution for uh, greater intervals out to 12 weeks with bolusizumab, and this was statistically significant and therefore met the primary endpoint of being superior. As you just said, Talon met its other primary endpoint, which was best corrected visual acuity improvement from baseline, as averaged over weeks 28 and 32. What are some other details you can share with us? No, you're right on. And in fact, again, you have to show the same vision outcomes. If you don't, then yeah, you can you can push the treatment interval as long as you want, but you're going to start losing vision. Um, and uh, so that's the point here. Uh, if you look at BCVA change over time, it's it's essentially identical uh, right from four weeks all the way out to 32 weeks. The, the lines are almost superimposable and therefore statistically non-inferior. Uh, and that was that second co-primary endpoint. There were a handful of secondary endpoints. Can you outline those with us? Yeah, and every wet MB study, we're looking at disease control and that's measured by OCT. Um, and in fact, uh, the OCT analysis, which was the central subfield uh, thickness change from baseline to, again, average over weeks 28-32, showed that bolestizumab was, once again, actually superior um, here. It was statistically significant in terms of greater reduction in central subfield thickness compared to a flibercept. So at that endpoint, the primary endpoint, uh, the mean CSFT, central subfield thickness, change was 167 microns for bolicizumab and 140 microns for flibercept. And this was also statistically significant. So we can say that now, looking at all the data, uh, bolicizumab lasts longer than flibercept, results in equivalent vision outcomes with less treatment and also dries better on average and with less treatment. So 
you get longer durability, greater durability, um, and better drying with less treatment. Of course, we're talking about berlicizumab, so the audience will have some questions about safety data. What did the Talon researchers find when it came to safety among the two treatment groups? Yeah, so the safety of berlicizumab and eflirbicept in the Talon, this phase 3b study, was actually very similar, the safety profile, ocular and systemic, uh, to the phase 3 Hawk and Harrier uh, studies, which led to the approval of berlicizumab, and that was a non-inferiority study compared to eflirbicept. And there was an imbalance in uh, adverse events. If you look at the total ocular adverse events, um, it was a little bit higher with bolusismab, about, about 27% versus 22%. Uh, and when you look specifically at serious ocular adverse events, there is an imbalance. 2.2% for bolusismab is 0.5% aflibercept. Look at adverse events, again, ocular adverse events leading to uh, steady drug discontinuation was higher with bolusismab, 4.4 versus 0.3%. And then we can talk about the so-called adverse events of special interest, which um, came out higher with bolucizumab, 5.5% versus 1.1% with aflibercept. What specifically is an adverse event of special interest? Yeah, basically they're inflammatory uh, events uh, of varying degrees of severity that may or may not also include um, direct retinal changes such as retinal vasculitis or even retinal vascular occlusions. So if you look at all adverse events of special interest, um, most of it's actually intraocular inflammation. And again, 5.5 versus 1.1 is the imbalance there. And specifically, intraocular inflammation alone is usually not a problem. Um, It's usually doesn't result in um, a permanent decline in vision. Um, But what's more serious and what we are looking closely at are these associated direct retinal vascular events, occlusions. Uh, When we look at intraocular inflammation with vascular occlusions, uh, that rate came out to be 1.4% with bolusizumab versus 0.3% with aflibercept. So even aflibercept had one such event, um, but there is imbalance with more events with bolusizumab. Now, these figures are actually about the same as what we saw at the Hawk and Harrier study. So the safety profile hasn't changed, it's pretty much the same. Um, and it's not quite as good as it is with the Flibercept or maybe some of the other anti-BEGFs we've been using. Um, but um, this drug is now FDA, we also have to approve for DME with a similar safety profile. So the FDA has deemed this to be an acceptable safety profile. Understood. Now, talent is not over. There's still more coming. Can you give us a preview? Yeah, I think it's going to get really interesting uh, as we follow patients out and we'll analyze data later this year uh, on the end of study 64 week results. And that's going to give us an opportunity to see how the treatment intervals change over time as we uh, make attempts to extend out to 16 weeks with both drugs. So we'll get the sort of full picture of the durability profile for both drugs um, out beyond one year. So stay tuned. Beautiful. Fascinating study. Dr. Regillo, thanks for joining us on New Retina Radio. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
Thurisumab is one of the newest players in the retina space, and following its approval by the U.S. FDA in January, we're beginning to learn more about the real-world dynamics surrounding it. How do we learn those dynamics? Why, a study was designed. Specifically, the Truckee study, data from which was presented at the ASRS annual meeting by Dr. Carl Danzig. Dr. Danzig practices at the Rand Eye Institute in Deerfield Beach, Florida, which is right outside of Fort Lauderdale. Dr. Danzig, thanks for joining us on New Retina Radio. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Greg. It's a real pleasure being here with you guys again. These types of studies are illuminating as they allow us to better understand how a treatment is actually being applied in the real world. Tell us about the Truckee study, which evaluated ferisumab in real-world patients with wet AMD. Well, the Truckee study is designed as a collaboration of physicians. This is not pharmaceutical company sponsored. This is our own endeavor to show our utilization of ferisumab you know, soon after FDA approval. So what we did, we looked at uh, treatment-naive patients, but most of the patients in the Truckee study were those hard-to-treat patients, the high-need patients who required frequent injections due to persistent disease activity. So we looked at the demographics. We looked at the prior treatment history. And with that, we examined the efficacy and safety uh, of ferisumab in this patient population. What can you tell us about some of the demographics of those patients? Right. So we had a total of 377 total patients. And that was about 421 eyes. You know, some eyes, you know, were bilateral injections that were treated with ferisumab. And it totaled for a complete or a total of 770 intravitreal injections were administered. But then what we looked at, specifically, we looked up, we looked at those patients that had follow-up. So follow-up was defined as a patient who had ferisumab injection and came back. Uh, for his or her follow-up visit. Now, we had that available for 236 eyes, and we looked at the population that had a follow-up with, uh, with vision of greater than or equal to 2,400. And why do we choose this number? We chose it because we were converting the Snellen uh, chart and the letters read on that chart to EDTRS letters. So it was much easier in doing it in the patients who are 2,400 or better, which was the vast majority. So among those patients who had at least one follow-up, you looked at, as I understand it, three particular metrics. Uh, can you tell us what those metrics were and what you found? Right. So we looked at, you know, letters. You know, how, how many letters did they read on the e, you know, ETDRS letters? And what we found is that, you know, in those 236 eyes, those patients were, were stable. The, the vision didn't really change. You know, half a letter improvement really is, is stable vision. But we also looked at central subfield thickness. So we took their baseline OCT and then we measured it on follow-up and we found that there was a small decrease in OCT thickness. So for, for a difference of about 32 microns. Now, these are patients that are you know, mostly tough to treat. So if they were stable on you know, their prior treatment every you know, four to six weeks and they were dry and now we're switching to ferisumab to see if we can later on extend them out, we're not expecting a huge change in OCT thickness, but given that some of these patients were treatment naive and did have some persistent fluid, there was a, a small gain. And then we also measured uh, PED height, and we found that on the follow-up, it was about 14 micron decrease in PED height. In the follow-up group, that included patients who were treatment naive. What about when you looked at patients who had already undergone a previous treatment with anti-VEGF, which is to say they had something of a head start? Right. So these patients, 
you know, were the majority. So there were 236 patients with a follow-up, but 220 of or 236 eyes with a follow-up. It was 220 eyes that were switched. Okay. So the vast majority were switched patients. And yes, they had a head start, but you know, a head start, but they, they didn't do as well as we would have liked. I mean, they, they, they had state, they, they were mostly stable with persistent fluid or dry on a monthly interval, but these patients needed, you know, or wanted to, you know, have fewer injections. I mean, they were getting injection injected, you know, nine, 10, 11 times a year, uh, sometimes 12. So these patients, you know, their vision also was stable, you know, 0.7 letter gain, less than one letter gain, that's stable. Their vision, you know, did not go down at all. Their CST uh, was reduced by almost 27 microns. So that's pretty good in, a pa in patients who were previously treated. And the PED height decreased by almost six microns. And the thing that's important here is that the treatment interval remained the same, approximately 39 days between injections. And what about safety? Safety is of paramount importance, you know, in our, in our field. You know, many physicians are hesitant to implement new therapies until, you know, the safety has been proven in a real world setting. So of those 770 injections, there have been zero cases of intraocular inflammation. That means no uveitis. There have been no case of retinal vasculitis. There have been no cases of retinal artery occlusions. And that's excellent to know, though it's very early in our study. There was one case of culture positive endophthalmitis that was treated with tap and inject, and that patient retur vision returned to uh, his baseline. You shared a few patient cases during your ASRS lecture. Can you quickly summarize those for us? Right. So my first case I demonstrated or showed was a 94-year-old gentleman whom I have been treating for nine years. So he was 85 when I met him. He has been getting injections monthly. He was even in a clinical trial for patients with persistent fluid. He had been alternating over the last year or so between a flibercept and brolocizumab every other month, a different medicine, and he still had persistent fluid. His vision was 2060. 33 days after his ferisimab injection, his vision remained, or 36 days, remained 2060, but this is the first time that the fluid under the fovea had resolved. So for him, even though his vision didn't change, it injected hope into this patient that, hey, I'm 94 years old and there's hope I will not need to have monthly injections. Yes, I will need to keep having injections, but it may not be as frequent. And the patient was happy and hopeful. There was the case of a patient with intraretinal fluid whose vision improved a little bit after switching to farisimab. Can you tell us about that patient? Yes, this is a really wonderful case. You know, we all know that intraretinal fluid is, you know, a major cause of decreased vision in, in, in wet macular degeneration and also other retinal vascular diseases. So in this case, the patient had 2070 vision with a CST of 351 microns, had farisimab injected 39 days later which was consistent with the prior treatment interval, the intraretinal fluid resolved, the vision improved from 2070 to 2050, the CST reduced from 351 to 292. 
This was an excellent response. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. The Truckee study is uh, ongoing, it sounds like. When can we expect to hear more from the study group? So it is an ongoing study, and we are still looking for new sites that want to collaborate with us. But this is an early experience, and we're looking to, you know, add to our study database and one day look at durability. I'm hoping that at the fall meetings, we'll be able to have something to present if we're fortunate enough to have that opportunity. We're still waiting for final confirmation of that. But in the meantime, we're still collecting data, and we do expect that later this year and in 2023, we'll have more data to present. Dr. Danzig, thanks for joining us, and thanks for coming back on the show. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on our first episode of ASRS 2022 meeting coverage. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or on whichever platform you use. And if you are using Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps your peers find the episodes. We have two more episodes of ASRS coverage. Keep an eye out on your podcast feed.